Shalom everyone, I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries and welcome to our Torah study this Sabbath uh, in which we're emphasizing why the Torah is for all people. Uh, today, this Sabbath, we have a double portion and we are at the final chapters of the book of Exodus. In fact, we're going to begin at chapter 35 at verse 1. It is entitled uh, Vayakel. And then there's another portion that concludes the book of Exodus called Pekude. Now, when you go and you read these particular passages, one of the things that will strike you is it seems to be redundant. In other words, there's a listing of materials that's used in the tabernacle, and, and then you go a little bit further, and here's another list of the same materials in it. And you go a little bit farther, and here's another list of the same materials that were used in it. And I know a lot of people, when they read these passages, when they're doing a Bible reading program or doing a Torah study, they're perplexed with, it seems like that Moses is getting old and doesn't remember what he last told you, and he's telling you again. You know, by the way, that's a common thing that older folks do sometimes. I'm, I'm accused many times, and rightfully so, of telling a joke and then turning around and telling the same joke again to the, including the same people and then telling the joke again and, and everybody has to go through this motion of being nice to me and respectful because they've already heard it before. And when you go through these passages, you'll get a little sense of that with regard to Moses. But I want to clarify why Moses does this. Uh, the first thing he's going to do in this portion, he's going to recount how these materials were a contribution. And the passage that we had heard earlier that we talked about gathering up this uh, contribution was the passage called Teruma, which means contribution. And it talked about the materials that were being solicited and asked so they could build the tabernacle. And here he's going to emphasize about the giving of those items. Then he's going to give us an assessment of the exact materials and exactly how they were used for the various things. He's going to tell you why the purple material was used and how it was used in the tabernacle and the scarlet material where it was used. And he's going to talk about the coverings of things and all of the things that are created. The same material that we had heard earlier but this time he's going to explain how was it actually used. In other words, what materials, contributions went into making different things. And finally, and that's our last portion, he's going to give an account. Pekude means um, accounting or a numbering of, uh, and you're giving an account to how you used the contribution. Uh, and it, it's, it's precedent setting for all ministries that you be open and clear and specific how you use the Lord's resources. And as you know, accounting uh, of the Lord's resources in a lot of religious ministries and churches and so forth is a very important subject with regard to maintaining integrity and credibility for the ministry. We've heard way too many stories and too many examples of where a religious ministry or a religious man uh, was unable to give an account properly for all the funds and expenditures that they'd use. This is what trips people up. 
they get caught up in managing these resources and they take a little bit more and use it to their advantage and it's not used purposely for it. And a lot of um, uh, nonprofit organizations, they're always reviewing of, of the dollars that came in, how many or what percentage actually went to the project that they had solicited funds for and how much was eaten up in administrative costs or organizational costs or the cost for the leader as to how much he got uh, for it. And so the Bible here is going to address, Moses is going to be very specific about that I can account for everything that was contributed and it went to the tabernacle. You know, it did not personally enrich him or anyone else. It was used strictly for the creation of the tabernacle. Now I want to focus in on chapter 35, where we talked about how Moses emphasizes the spirit of the giving. In other words, when the offering was taken up for all these materials, I want to recount to you some of the things he talks about. Uh, let me begin to read here from chapter 35, and the, because we have this little interesting combination that I want to point out right off the bat. Instead of talking about the tabernacle, we're going to talk about Sabbath. And all of a sudden, he's going to then go back and start talking about building the tabernacle. So we're going to have that Moses making a very interesting point here, which I will emphasize as soon as we have done the reading. Beginning at chapter 35, verse 1, it says, Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work may be done. But on the seventh day, you shall have a holy day, <clears throat> a Sabbath, a complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on this shall be put to death, and you shall not kindle fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Um, here's this fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And he elaborates a little bit about don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. Now, in those days, to kindle a fire, it meant that you had to go out and gather the firewood. You had to prep the firewood. Sometimes you had to cut it. And then, uh, as you know, we didn't have Zippo lighters and those little big lighters in those days. And so if they were going to get a fire going, they had to spark, you know, sometimes with flint and or they had to rub the sticks thing and get enough friction and heat to build coals to, to get a fire started. In either case, it, they were both very laborious ta uh, tasks for them to do. And the emphasis on Sabbath is not the emphasis on, oh, you can't kindle a flame. The emphasis is on don't be doing laborious and strenuous things. Having done those in advance, you're supposed to, on the Sabbath, rest uh, you're not supposed to be going and doing all those other things. In fact, in the keeping of the Sabbath, people will come to understand there's a day of preparation that goes with the Sabbath. So the day before the Sabbath is when the household is preparing to have the Sabbath. That was when they would have their coals and kindling ready to go. It's already going. So when the Sabbath comes, they don't have to start over and make a new fire because they already have one and other things associated with that. It was all about putting the emphasis on being able to rest. 
Now that's the commandment, and that's trying to explain uh, what we got. But why in the world did Moses decide to, in the midst of the discussion about creating and building the tabernacle with all of its materials, why slip this thing in about Sabbath? Well, it turns out that, that, that there's something going to be emphasized in this portion that's not about the materials, uh, so to speak, for the tabernacle, but what was the heart of the people with regard to assembling materials and making contributions and bringing the materials to bear. Let me highlight a couple of passages for you so you can see what I'm saying. If we read down a little bit further, verse 5 says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of willing heart. And that is the key phrase. No one was to give anything toward the tabernacle. There was no mandatory requirement that you give to it. You did it voluntarily because in your heart you wanted to be a part of it. You wanted to do it from a willing heart. He goes further. In uh, verse 20, he said, uh, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed uh, from Moses' presence, and everyone whose heart stirred him... And everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting. Again, it, the emphasis is on, it, it's not that Moses ordered this or that Moses' request was, everybody was honoring his request. Moses was simply coordinating the communication. What really was taking place was the hearts of the people were moved by the Holy Spirit to be a part of this and to have a say in it. Uh, to this day, you can go to Israel, and if you visit the Temple Institute, you can make a contribution uh, there while in Israel that will be used for uh, vessels and implements and other things associated with the future tabernacle temple that will be built in Jerusalem. And they fully intend to try to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And you can make a contribution, but you don't do so because it's a requirement or whatever. You, you do it because your, your heart is stirred. You, you want to be a part uh, of that. We go down a little bit further. Verse 22, it says, Then all those whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought the, the various things. Again, the emphasis on that the, where the heart was at is what was moving them. Go a little bit further, verse 26. And all the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. In other words, the women that took the goat's hair to make the tenting material, the fabric of the tent and the tabernacle, they had to spin that and they had to work that and weave that together. And it says, only the women that were stirred in their heart uh, to do so. Then it goes on to say that the men who actually made the Ark of the Covenant, made the internal features and furniture associated with the tabernacle, that they had been filled with the Spirit of God to do these things. Even down to that the Spirit of God was given to them from wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and craftsmanship. So the fellow who crafted the Ark of the Covenant, he did so by being moved by the Holy Spirit 
to do what he did. It wasn't his design. It wasn't his doing. It was that which was done by the Lord. And then it went a little bit further of them because they needed more than just a couple of guys to do this. It, uh, verse 34, he also put in his heart to teach. Not only did he call craftsmen and so forth, moved by the Spirit of God, but he also put it in their heart to teach others to be able to join in and to still contribute to this whole process. By the way, there were many, many craftsmanship jobs that were needed in the, in the, um, in the tabernacle. The melting of metals and making bowls, the weaving of the fabric, the goat's hair, making all the different coverings, fashioning all the different things in gold and silver, the press piece, the breast piece, the, the high priest garments. All of these required uh, some measure of skill and craftsmanship. And clearly it's saying that these people who participated and did this, it was done by the Spirit of God. All right? We go a little bit further, chapter 36. Again, speaking of those <clears throat> men that were specifically responsible for the creation of the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, and the menorah, it says, Now Bezalel and Oliav, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put the skill and understanding in them. In other words, this was something that was uniquely done. The way it was done, the way they gathered materials was not like you would normally deal. You know, Moses didn't set up, you know, a GoFundMe page. You know, he said, no, he just let the word be out that this is what we're going to do. And those that are moved and led by the Lord uh, to do that, those whose hearts were stirred within them were the ones who did it. And it got to the point where they had to finally restrain the people. The hearts of the people were so committed to this uh, that they finally had to say, no, no more. We, get, we can't take it anymore. And we find that in verse 6. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. Wouldn't a, a congregation like to have that? That you have to restrain the people. Do, please don't give more. We, we just don't, don't need it. We just can't handle it. We, we don't, it. There's no reason for us to accumulate this. Please, you, you, you stay. You keep it. Well, you don't see that problem very much in churches today or in communities, do you? But at the, the, the formation of the tabernacle, because it was done from their hearts. Um, so... So let me go back to the <clears throat> first part of this portion. You remember we had that little discussion about Sabbath. Well, here is a very interesting spiritual formula, and this is one of the drosh principles of this scripture. If you can get a group of people who are willing to keep the commandment of Sabbath, and you put within them willing hearts, to give and to work toward the Lord's uh, goals, you have the makings of a congregation. Your community will be formed because, <clears throat> one, you want to keep the commandment Sabbath, and you have a willing heart, a heart to give. 
One of the things that I uh, uh, commend other leaders uh, when they come to me and they begin their ministries and they're thinking about forming a congregation, they say, when is the moment that we should uh, then start finding a place and get set up and start having a, um, uh, a congregation? And the counsel I've given, based on this passage of Scripture, is you don't do it until they have the heart to do it. Don't do it because you go in and say, hey, I'm the leader of this and I'm going to set this up and uh, you know, no, you, they have to have a heart to do this or else you won't be successful. How do you sense when they have the heart to do it? It's when they start giving. You know, the scripture teaches us for where your treasure is, your heart is there also. The, the, how you share and give is a direct reflection of your heart. If you're the type of person who, who gives of his time, gives of his resources to assist other brethren, there's no question you have the heart to love them. And, and this is the formula, this is the spiritual formula on how you can join into a group and begin to establish a spiritual community or a congregation in your various locations. There has to be a willingness to keep the Sabbath, and then they have to have a heart uh, to do so, a heart to give. And when they, when they get to two of those, you've got the makings of a new congregation, a new assembly uh, named after the Lord, and to follow the Lord's things. It's a pretty simple formula, and it works every time. Now, before I go any further, I want to remind everybody of something that of the, let me go back into the history here, uh, in chapter 20, why we heard the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And there's ten specific commandments. But for some reason, we're not quite sure, but for some reason, it's the fourth commandment that gets all the attention. The one about Sabbath. Now God gave, when he gave the commandment, he says, you'll keep this, to show that I'm the creator, that I created the heavens and the earth in six days, and then I rested. He later goes on to emphasize the children of Israel, and we read it not too long ago, that the keeping of the Sabbath is a sign between me and the children of Israel. Why is that a sign? It's because the people who keep the Sabbath are joining with the creation God, joining with the, the, the God of Israel to form the congregation, the assembly, uh, the church, if you will, of Israel. And church, by the way, in the context I'm using is referring to ecclesia in the Greek, the called out assembly. And Israel became the first church, the first called out assembly when they left Egypt. That's where the word ecclesia first shows up in the Septuagint, the Greek rendition of the whole Bible. So it, it, it's fundamental to us, and it's fundamental of kind of where your heart is at. It's fundamental to how you're going to keep the practice of the faith. Um, quite simply, if you um, don't keep the Sabbath... If you decide, oh, for other reasons, I just don't feel I need to, I don't want to, 
uh, well, we've got, uh, you've got some other theology that says we're going to do something different, whatever the case may be, it's clear from that behavior and that example, one, you don't really believe in the Lord, and two, you certainly don't love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. It's just fundamental. Uh, John, in his last letter, said, uh, if a man says that he loves God, but he won't keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John's very emphatic about this. You must keep the commandments. You have to do those things to be a part of the assembly, to show that you love the Lord your God, to have the heart to love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, to pull all that together. James specifically said, you say you have faith. Let me see your works. In other words, let me see the commandments you keep. That will tell me where your faith is at. And as I say to others, you don't have to tell me that you believe in Jesus or whatever. Just show me the commandments you keep. I will tell you what God you believe in. I will tell you what God you love. And fundamentally here, if you don't keep the Sabbath, if you're not willing to honor this commandment, then don't go around saying you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of Israel. And oh, by the way, it extends all the way down to the Messiah. Don't go around telling me that you love the Messiah and you believe in the Messiah, because the Messiah said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And Sabbath is right up there with one of the ones he was referring to. Why? Because Yeshua himself said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Yeshua, Jesus Christ, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we're not talking about any day you pick Sabbath. We're talking about the Sabbath defined in the Scriptures that prophesied of the Messiah to come and the things that he would do. So this mixed with a willing heart is how you're going to have a successful congregation. Now, I've also heard a lot of folks going around, well, it's really the heart. Well, it's really the heart when it comes to obeying the Lord. You, you begin to obey the Lord because you have the heart to do it. By the way, that's where sin comes from too. It begins with the heart. And this is what Messiah was teaching about, that it's not what goes in a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth, meaning what did his heart speak? That's what defiles the man. And so the emphasis, while I appreciate my Christian brethren emphasizing, well, the heart's very important. You're absolutely right. Extremely important. However, it must be connected with what God has said. If God has said something and you do the opposite, I don't care if you do mouth out that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. You don't. The Scripture's emphatic and very clear about this. That should make us all take pause and say, wait a minute, let me examine you know, where my heart's really at. Let me examine my life. In other words, I've got all these internal things I feel about God, but are my outward things, do they reflect that same thing or are they different? 
Now, in the faith, if we see a guy who says one thing and does something else, we call him a hypocrite. And by the way, the leaders of Israel in the day of Yeshua were all hypocrites. May I go ahead and just advance this point here to our modern day, all the leaders and all the people that we see in charge of the world today, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. And it's discouraging when you see that. You know they're not speaking the truth. You know this is not according to what God would have us to do. This is sin. Now, it's missing a mark. So that's one of the first lessons that we get about this creation of the tabernacle is it had to be done from the heart. And by the way, once the tabernacle was done, when did most people come to the tabernacle? Sabbath. That's when they used to go to the tabernacle, Sabbath. They would gather. And today, when do we as, as members of a fellowship or a congregation, when do we assemble? Sabbath. Feast, yes, but Sabbath. When Moses is going to teach the feast, what is the first one that he teaches? Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath, what you learn from the Sabbath, is what you use in each other feast and celebration throughout the year. If you don't keep the Sabbath, there's no way to keep properly Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, uh, Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, or Tabernacles. You can't keep them correctly if you don't learn how to keep the Sabbath first and to make that a part of it because the high Sabbaths are in the midst of those feasts as well. So that is essentially one of the, one of the major messages that we get out of this first person, uh, per, uh, portion, I should say, Vayakhel. And now we're going to look at the second portion. And by the way, before I do this, let me, let's talk about why is the Sabbath a double portion. Um, throughout um, the years, um, the, the Hebrew calendar um, has a series of leap years. And by a leap year, it's not like our leap year where in February we get an extra day. And instead of 28 days, we get 29 days of February on leap years. It happens every four years. And it keeps the months and the seasons in sync with each other and keeps the spring and the fall in sync with the calendar and so forth. So the Hebrew calendar, which is based on moon cycles, lunar cycles, does that stay in sync with all of that? No, it does not. And the reason is because the moon rotates around the earth every 29 and a half days or so. And if you add up 12 of those, okay, it doesn't come to 365 days. It comes up to about 355 days. And in particular, to get everything to sync correctly, it's one of three measurements of a year. 354, 300, excuse me, 353, 354, or 355 days. However, if you had a calendar that just kept doing it, you'd still go out of sync, and you'd have a springtime month following in the summer, and, and it would all be flipped around. It wouldn't be right. So what they do is they've calculated this out um, in a 19-year period, a 19-year cycle, 
seven of those 19 years are going to be what we call leap years. They're called uh, long years because what they're going to do is they're going to add one more month into the year. And the last month of the year that before going into Nisan in the springtime, the last winter month, is called Adar. Now, every year we have an Adar 1. But on a long year where we're trying to keep everything in sync, uh, so that the month of Nisan comes in the springtime and the fall holidays come in the fall, um, the, uh, and in a long year we add another month called Adar 2. And on short years, which are the more common ones, we don't have an ADAR tool. So there's short years have 12 months, long years have 13 months. And the number of days can vary. I've already mentioned the numbers for a short year, but in a long year, it's 383, 384, or 385 days is the length of the year. Now, I mention that here uh, because uh, this is one of the things that plays into uh, what we're going to have here. And that is um, um, boy, I just walked myself right into a statement, so where's the conclusion? Um, it's essential to understand well, I've got it. It's essential to understand this because Moses was instructed to specifically build this tabernacle on the first day of the first month. And the first month of my counting of months is Nisan. It's the one that comes in springtime. And in fact, on the 14th of Nisan is the Passover. 15th of Nisan, it begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he's emphatically told to link the Hebrew calendar with this. And so it will set, help set the schedule for all of the Sabbath services and all of the holidays that will be completed with the tabernacle. Of course, I've been asked before, uh, do, we think that, do we think that the Sabbath that we're doing uh, today is the real Sabbath, or do you think it got off sync anywhere along the lines? And the answer, the simple answer is no. The Sabbath we observe today at the last day of the week is the same Sabbath that used to be served when Yeshua was here, the same one that goes all the way back to the beginning. This is one of the things that has perpetuated from the very beginning. Um, you know, our theme here in teaching the Torah this year, Torah is for all people. Did you know that the Sabbath that we're keeping today, that you're commanded to keep, is the same one that went back there? These instructions concerning the Sabbath apply to you today because you have the same Sabbath. Same God, same Sabbath. And by the way, as according to our portion here, you have the same heart as Abraham had and his descendants, the ancient descendants. You have the same heart as they have. There's nothing new under the sun, brother. That's what Ecclesiastes say. And you and I are sons and daughters of our father Abraham. Some of us are not by physical birth, but by we, because your heart has turned, you've been reborn. 
You've been born of the Spirit of God. And guess what happened? When you're born of the Spirit of God, you're part of this. You're part of this Torah. You're part of this great story. You're part of this same family. And you are part of this same nation that has come together. And what forms Israel as a nation? The keeping of Sabbath and a willing heart toward the God of Israel. That's how, and I've shared this before, you know, the Jewish rabbis say, it is not that Israel has kept the Sabbath. It is that the Sabbath has kept Israel. And that's part of our identity. If you're a Messianic believer, you're going to want to keep Sabbath. It's what connects you with the greater Israel. It's what connects you with God's timekeeping. It's what connects you with his festivals and his holidays. It's what connects you with a relationship with God because you want to follow what God said. You want to believe in the same things that he has talked about. Now, we get to this next portion, and part of the reason we have a double portion this year is because of the calendar. And the calendar this particular year calls for there to be these two portions to be taught together. By the way, they blend together very well. And there's other passages that will be doubles. And that's how you get all the teaching of the Torah to fit within a single year, uh, no matter what length of year, no matter whether it's a long year or a short year, whatever. They make these little adjustments based on the year as to which portions are doubled up and which ones are taught singly uh, for it. This particular year... This is one of the first portions where it's doubled up. So we're at Pekude, which is chapter 37. And let me uh, share with you what it has to say there. Verse 1, Now Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood its length, two and a half, uh, two and a half cubits, its width one and a half cubits, and its height one and a half cubit. He overlaid it with pure gold, and made a gold molding for it all around, and he cast four rings of gold so that it is, uh, for it on its four feet, and two rings on one side and two rings on the other side, and he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them, and he put the poles in the rings to the sides of the ark to carry it. Now, isn't that fascinating? Part of the creation of the tabernacle was to make it so it was mobile. It wasn't just to be in a fixed location. And he made the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread and the menorah this same way. Not, not the menorah, excuse me. Now, why would, why would God do that? Even though he knew he was going to establish Jerusalem. Because he wanted to maintain and keep them mobile to go where the people go. And um, to tell you the truth, we're scattered in the nations. We don't have a fixed location of a temple. So where's the Ark of the Covenant today? Well, if you're willing to hear it, it's in your heart. It's in the tabernacle that's in here. And you're mobile, and it's mobile, and it stays with you. Wherever you go, he's with you. And it's fascinating that that would be part of the construction of this and emphasized as being a part of the discussion. And again, he is going down through and he's talking about how each item was made. And he goes from 
um, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the poles for it, um, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the holy anointing oil, even the consumables, they're all mentioned here as being created and actually made by these craftsmen for the use of the tabernacle and so forth. And they're all going to be anointed so that they can be used. They can be dedicated to the servants of God for it. And then part of his accounting of it, he actually equates everything over to shekels. He equates things over to money. That's what you and I would do when we equate a value of something. We say, well, what's it worth? Oh, it's a beautiful car. It's a great car. Great paint job. Yeah, but what's it worth? What did it cost you? That's what we do. You see a beautiful home. Oh my, oh my, what a gorgeous home. It's got a plaza there and a swimming pool and it's beachfront property and blah, 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 blah. But the question is, what's it worth? What's it worth? Uh, I don't care what the novelty of it is. The real value is, we all know, is how much does it cost? And that's essentially what's taking place here in the latter part of chapter 38. It says, verse, let me just give you a sample of verse 24. All the gold that was used for the work and the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the wave offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels. Let me go ahead and just give you this biblical fact. 1,500 shekels is the equivalent of one talent of gold. So when he talks about 730 shekels were used in addition to the talents, He's saying it was about a half a talent. In fact, it was 20 short of a half a talent of gold. And then he goes down to, and he even numbers the men. And we'll have a whole book coming up, the book of Numbers, which will talk about the numbering of the congregation of Israel and how many there were, and the half shekel that was gathered up when you number them and so forth. And it's referring to the 600 three men, 550 men uh, here in the book. They were the first ones that were sealed. Now, I want you to take note of this number. There's a reason why this number is given here. This is when things were going fairly well. The people who had come out of, uh, come out of Egypt, they were the people who were in the camp. Now, as you know, the story, the, the story about the wilderness, that generation got judged they had turned to and they made the golden altar. They made, excuse me, not the golden altar, but the golden idol. They made the calf. And God punished them and said he didn't want to deal with them anymore. They died in the wilderness. So it's the descendants of them that will actually be crossing over the Jordan into the promised land. How many were there in that? Well, it turns out there were some another 600,000 number. That meant that the men of war, 603,550 that came out of Egypt, died in the wilderness, but they were replaced in numbers by their offspring and those that followed and came up for it. Again, God had promised Abraham that your descendants will be as the stars of the sky. Now, for those of you who don't know this, astronomers can tell you this, then with the naked eye, if you look up into the sky and you start counting the stars, you're going to count just over 600,000 stars. That's what you're going to see. 
if you had 2020 hindsight and you could count them all up. You're, when you look up at night and you see it, you're, you're looking at nearly 600,000 stars. That's what 600,000 looks like. And he had made the promise, your descendants will be like the stars of the heaven. And here they are. The number of them he is equivalent to that little physical science fact. And even after they were judged and God had punished them in the wilderness, when it came time to cross over and to leave the wilderness, they were still that great number. God was still being faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to raise up Israel as he had prophesied and said would take place. The, um, let me go ahead and just tell you this. Um, you don't want to be on the church rolls when the church first gets made. You want to be on the church rolls after the church shuts down because the Messiah has returned. That's when you want your registration in. That's when you want to be on the list. You want to be counted at the end, not necessarily at the beginning. Now, you know, when we start organizations, we count everybody at the beginning. Oh, I was a founder there. I was, a, you know, so that's great. Uh, the one that counts, <laughs> excuse the pun, the one that counts is the last count. That's the one that makes all the difference in the world. Now, 39, chapter 39, is going through, again, a material list and exactly how it was done to where we get to chapter 40, and then it's going to tell us the sequence of the construction. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I will, I will summarize for you. Uh, first, the ark was made. The ark of the covenant held the two tablets. The veil for the Holy of Holies was then made. This is the interior stuff of the tabernacle. The structure was put together to form the Holy of Holies. Then the table of showbread was created. The altar of incense was then created. The veil for the outer part was done. Excuse me, way back in the table, we also did the lamp. In other words, we're building it from the inside out. And that's the sequence of done. And once they've done the, the um, uh, stuff in the sanctuary, then it shifts to the main altar. It shifts to the laver where they would wash uh, to it. Then the outer veil of the, of the sanctuary coming in. And then they made the oil and then they made the priestly garments. There's a whole sequence here of how things were laid out. Now, I want to show you a very interesting verse and the language of how this is laid out. It's in verse 4, chapter 40, verse 4. And he says, Moreover, you shall set a golden altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. And you shall set the altar of incense before the ark of the testimony, and well, I already read that. And you shall set the altar burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. The, um, the way this is worded, if you had not actually been in the tabernacle or the temple, if you didn't, hadn't read other instructions about what was going on with the design, you might think, okay, we get the Ark of the Testimony, and then I'm going to put the golden altar in front of that, and then I'll put the veil 
which then sets the Holy of Holies. And at that point, those items are inside the Holy of Holies. Namely, the Ark of the Covenant and the altar, golden altar. You would think, based on this description, they're inside. But as we all know, in other passages and so forth, we know that's not correct. We know that there's actually, the veil separates the two. There's an Ark of the Covenant, there's a veil, and then there is a golden altar. But God said, when I want you to make this and set it up, I want you to put first the, uh, the altar, or excuse me, the um, Ark of the Covenant. Then I want you to put the golden altar in front of that, then put the veil to separate the two. Now, I mention that because this is the point of confusion that we have in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, and I don't believe it was the Apostle Paul, is trying to make a point about that God had a certain order to how the tabernacle was built. He, he has an order to the things that he does and calls for worship. Let me read from you from chapter Numbers, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there were a, a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which was the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. So he's describing it not from the inside out. He's, he's like you walked into the first sanctuary and he's explaining what's in the first sanctuary. He's not telling you what's in the Holy of Holies. He's telling you what's in the sanctuary. And yes, what is in the sanctuary, okay, is the menorah, the table of showbread. It's in there. Now verse 3 it says, And behind the veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Okay, so that veil's blocking those two sanctuaries. So what is in the Holy of Holies? Having, verse 4, a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the, ta and the tablets of the covenant. Wrong. That's a false statement. The golden altar was in the same sanctuary with the table of showbread and the menorah. It was on this side of the veil. It was not behind the veil with the Ark of the Covenant and all the other things. Well, so why did the writer of Hebrews do this? It's because in this Torah portion that I just read to you, it's not explicitly clear because it's talking about things, the sequence of things, how they were made. They're not necessarily explaining how they were placed. And so the writer of Hebrews is just like what he says here, uh, which w is what we just read. It said, uh, now the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which the lampstand table and the showbread, this is called the holy place, behind the veil there was having a golden altar of incense and the, and the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. The, he's following, he has misunderstood this passage in Isaiah 40. And I will tell you that I believe this wasn't the Apostle Paul because I think the person who wrote this 
This is what we would call a Sunday school mistake. I mean, even the little kids can get this one straight. This guy never saw the temple. I don't think he ever went to Jerusalem. I don't think he ever saw the physically the temple or understood really how things were set up inside of it. For him to say that behind the veil was the altar of incense along with the Ark of the Covenant is like a huge mistake. For those of us who believe in divine inspiration for the scriptures, for those of us who believe that um, these are inspired words moved by the Spirit of God, um, how can the Spirit of God move you to make such a fundamental mistake? It should bring into question, was this guy really writing and trying to give instruction by the Spirit of God, or was he doing something in his own strength? Well, I believe the argument goes on with the book of Numbers that he was doing it in his own assessment. It was not that which was correctly taught from the Scripture before. That this idea of shutting down the first covenant to make room for the, the New Testament or the New Covenant is ridiculous. Let me tell you why. I can give you a bunch of reasons. There wasn't an old covenant. There had previously been five other covenants leading up to the new covenant. Now it's true the new covenant is called the new covenant. But the other covenants are named after Noah. Uh, they're named after Abraham. They're named after Moses and the children of Israel, King David. They're named after them, you know, because those were the covenants God further manifested. And with the Messiah, God is further manifesting himself with us in the faith. I point this out because it's very important that we study the construction of and what went into the tabernacle. It's foundational to our faith. The writer of Hebrews missed it. And that's what caused him to make other errors in his um, thesis. All right, brethren, that is our portion for this week. I trust that you're going to have an excellent Sabbath. So Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.